Hey everybody, I'm Ashton Demery. And I'm Nicole Demery. And welcome to our Atheist Bible Study. Where we're both vaccinated! So we're both hot girls now. Yeah. All right. Officially. <laughs> okay, so jumping right into things. We are in numbers. So the Israelites just came off of a killing spree, and now they are camped outside of Moab. And this is making the king of Moab, Balak, very nervous. So he sends some messengers to a nearby holy man named Balaam, which when I first read it, I didn't realize that he worshipped Yahweh. I thought that he was just some like wizard dude for hire. I mean, he kind of is. Yeah. Also, these there's like three names in here that are all really similar. I know. It's very confusing. I'll make it clear throughout the whole thing. I'll keep saying this is the king. This is the wizard guy. So Balak sends messengers to Balaam the wizard, and asks him to curse the Israelites so that Moab can go in and fight them and wipe them all out. So Balaam asks the messengers that come to stay the night, and he's like, I'll just, you know, just hang out here. It doesn't happen immediately. I'll see if God speaks to me on this. And so overnight, God does come, and he tells them, hey, you can't curse the Israelites. Those are my people, so you're not going to do that. Next morning, he tells the messengers that he's not going to curse the Israelites because God told him not to, so the messengers go home. Next, Balak sends even more messengers, like fancier messengers, and offers even more rewards for Balak to curse the Israelites. And once again, Balaam asks them to stay the night. God speaks to him again in a dream, and he tells them, he tells them, you can't, you can't do that again. But go ahead and go with them, but only say exactly what I tell you to say. And so he tells the messengers, I'm not going to curse them, but I'll go with you guys. Now we get into the promised talking donkey story. So God all of a sudden turns into a wife written by a man, and he has completely changed his mind on this whole Balaam going with them situation. So now he's pissed that Balaam has decided to go with the messengers, even though that's exactly what he told them to do. Uh, So he sends this angel to block the middle of the road. Balaam is riding on a donkey, and the donkey sees the angel, gets spooked, and rides off the side of the road into a field. So Balaam gets mad, and he hits the donkey. Then the angel appears again in their way, this time in like some sort of alleyway situation. So the donkey just kind of squeezes by the angel, and this causes Balaam to scrape his foot against the wall. So he gets mad and he hits the donkey again. Then the, don- the angel gets in their way a third time. This time there's like no way for the donkey to go around. So he just lies down and Balaam hits him again, this time with his staff. Okay, so now the Lord speaks through the donkey as the donkey. And he asks Balaam, why have you chosen to hit me these three times? And Balaam, not shocked at all that his donkey is now talking to him, (laughs) says, you have made a fool out of me, and if I could kill you right now, I would. And so the donkey says, am I not your donkey, which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I been in the habit of treating you this way? To which Balaam says, no. Then the Lord allows Balaam to see the angel, because this whole time he hasn't been seeing it, just the donkey has. And the angel tells him, why did you hit your donkey three times? If your donkey had not gotten out of my way, I would have killed you and let the donkey live. <laughs> What's so weird about this, too, is, I mean, it's weird enough the donkey's talking, but you kind of just assume, okay, well, 
God's talking through the donkey, mm -hmm. but the donkey's talking as the donkey. Yeah. Okay, and what else is weird <laughs> is this is, like, another, like, God is the one choosing to harden the hearts type of thing. Yeah, yeah. He's literally the one who, one, told him to go, and two, decided to not make him able to see the angel, mm -hmm. so he has no idea what's going on. And Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so Balaam admits that he has sinned. How? I don't know, but... Yeah, he says, I have sinned, yeah. and I'm sorry, I will go back home if I didn't know you were against me. Yeah, he's literally like, um, so sorry, God. I should have known that when you told me to go, that you actually did not want me to go. So that's on me, <laughs> and I will take that. Yeah, I have I'll take that feedback. Yeah. <laughs> and then in the end, God is like, you know what? No, no, no. Go ahead and go. But You've already come this far. Yeah. You don't want to listen to me. <laughs> fucking go. Um, and gives him the exact same instructions. Go and just do exactly as I say. And so Balaam is like, okay, all right, I'll, I'll go. Balak finally arrives. The king goes out to greet him. So once again, the king is Balak. And they just talk to each other in questions back and forth. So Balak says, did I not summon you? Why did you not come? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam says, well, I'm fucking here now, but do I have the power to just say anything? What God tells me to say is what I must say. Pretty good zingers going on there. Mm -hmm. And then they go off together in the sunset to make some sacrifices. So next we have a series of oracles. So there's four oracles. So Balak takes Balaam to some mountaintop area where they can see part of the Israelite army. And Balaam asks Balak to build seven altars and prepare seven bulls and seven rams. So he does that, and then Balaam kind of, like, goes off somewhere to see if God will appear to him, which he does. And he comes back and sort of, like, God is speaking through him type situation, like what he was doing with the donkey. So... He, tell, he goes back and he tells Balak that I, you know, he's definitely not going to curse the Israelites. They're God's people. So he just can't do it. And he also kind of compliments them. And so Balak gets mad because not only is his, you know, wizard dude not going to curse these people, but now he's also saying nice things about them. Right. This is so dumb. So next, Balak is like, well, that didn't work. Let's try it again in a second <laughs> location. So they go to a, another mountaintop where they only see part of the army. And basically, we cycle through this whole thing again. So they build the seven altars. Uh, he goes off somewhere. God speaks to him. And I took a quote where it says, God is not a human being that he should lie or a mortal that he should change his mind. I have the same quote written down. <laughs> <laughs> Seconds ago, he told Balaam to go to this place. And then changed his mind. And not to mention the Israelites with them, he told them originally, I'm going to free you from Egypt, take you to this promised land. Well, now we're in the situation where he's like, actually, I hate all of you. So now I'm not taking you to the promised land. I'm going to take your children's children to the promised land. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. This, this God who never changes his mind. Balak thinks maybe if I try a third time, we'll get a different result. So they go to another location. Do the same thing again. I, I just love ba like Balak just willing to keep trying the same thing. Yeah, he's just and like another location, another sacrifice, five more sacrifices. Yeah, he seems to think that it's it's the, the environment that's just not you know it's not getting 
Balam in the zone or something yeah. like that. <laughs> so, okay, so every time the blessing or, like, the nice things that he says about the Israelites gets, like, a little bit more sparkly, a little bit more glowing. And so at this point, Balak is pretty mad and says, you know, I asked you here to curse these people, and now you're blessing them. What the hell? And Balaam is like, I don't know, sell you, man. I can only do what God tells me to do. So I'm going to go leave and advise the Israelites now. And then we get a fourth oracle. This one is kind of interesting because a lot of Christians today think that this predicts the coming of Christ because of this line. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So people think that the star is referring to like a deity, um, Jesus, and the scepter is like the his Christian following. Right. Yeah. But it's I interesting because like about that, but yeah. Yeah. Well, it the thing is, too, is it, obviously there's so many different ways people can try to translate this. So in our version, it says, I see him. And I behold him, but in other translations, it's not so personal. It says, I see it. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, this was never written with as far in the future as, you know, the time of, of Jesus in mind. This is really more about kind of the immediate, the immediate concerns of Israel. Mm -hmm. And so it's really more about, again, that promise of Israel taking the land of Canaan. Right. That's what the oracle is about. It's that Israel's going to sort of rise up and conquer everything that there is. Yeah. That is, is that the end here? of the like Balak and Balaam saga. Okay. So a few things on this. I mean, so first off, there's really the, the focus again on chosenness. Mm -hmm. All of these oracles, none of them are conditional. None of them say, Alec, if you choose to not stand against the Israelites and you choose to worship me, whatever, then I will not, then, then you will be left alone or, or your kingdom will thrive. He doesn't give what he gives to the Israelites. He doesn't offer it to the, the Moabite. Right. Because so, it's very clear that they both, that they worship or, you know, speak to Yahweh or like the same God that the Israelites are worshiping to. Are right. They? It seems that the, in the, you know, in Moab, or in Moab, they at least acknowledge Yahweh as existing in some way. Right. And it's just, the, the oracles all basically say, you're going to die and be conquered. You're going to be wiped out. I don't care what you do, because you're not the Israelites. You're getting destroyed. Yeah. So that is, I think, an interesting aspect of the Old Testament world, is none of it's really about for the most part, morality, anything like that. Or even that choosing to, to listen, you know? Yeah, and what this results in, too, is that Christians today, in order to justify all this, have to back paint narratives about the neighbors of the Israelites. Mm -hmm. Whenever I was in church, I do remember this, just them talking about how bad everybody else is. And when you look online and, and people talk about why they were wiped out, well, it's because they're just terrible and they do all these terrible things, but there's no, it doesn't say that anywhere mm -hmm. because it's not about that. It's about chosenness, but that doesn't work in a modern frame. People can't accept that because it, we just don't like that. Right. Well, it doesn't, <laughs> it's a different it time doesn't and, make sense. And chosenness like, isn't something we see as just. It, exactly. Additionally, 
So we'll talk a little bit about this sort of incongruence in Numbers 22 with God's anger being kindled against Balaam for going. This flip that sort of occurs at Numbers 22. Mm -hmm. So this is all pretty much J.E. text stuff. We're looking at Yahweh, Sinaloa's type stuff. Uh, Not really much priestly influence on any of this. And you can't really find a clear-cut two stories being sliced together like you can with some of these. Mm -hmm. You can't take away one narrative that's Yahweh and see a fully consistent story and in a side-by-side parallel narrative. They are kind of dependent on each other. But what you do see is that this donkey angel narrative doesn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. It comes in kind of out of nowhere. It ends, and it's not really important to any of the rest of the story. Yeah. So the theory about what is occurring here is more like redaction, more more like supplementary hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So at some later date, a redactor came in and added this story. My sort of hypothesis is what's going on here is that there are multiple traditions about Balaam probably out there. He seems to be sort of this, what's the word for it? Like Dominant. this legend. He's like yeah. a character that people know about, and there's probably a lot of oral stories about him. So this redactor knew about this other story, this donkey story, and he puts it in there because he considers this to be a true story about Balaam and that he thinks it belongs in this somewhere. So they do this thing that the Torah.com refers to as resumptive repetition. If you look at Numbers uh, 2235, they restate the part where God tells him he can go from earlier in the, the chapter. But now instead of in a dream, it's the angel of God directly telling him that. Right. And so that that's what they call it. Is it's a technique that the redactors would use where they kind of put in a side story and then they paraphrase something from the previous story to indicate, hey, we're back where we left off and we're continuing. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what happens here. You can cut out the whole donkey angel narrative and it's it makes a consistent story. Another reason I think they might have done this is it seems like the Israelites or this culture sort of sours on Balaam in later time periods yeah. or maybe just sours on their neighbors in general. So one time you have this idea of, Hey, we got some good neighbors. We've got Balaam out there and mm-hmm. some of them that, you know, they truly respect Yahweh and all this stuff. And then at a later time, they're really having trouble with their neighbors. And it's like, no, they're all bad. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the things that's going on here. Also, we talked about the line from the second oracle that says, God is not a human being, that he should lie, or a mortal, that he should change his mind. And you already mentioned one example, the one from right here in this very chapter. Mm -hmm. And then we also have Exodus 32, where Moses actually convinces God to not kill all the Israelites immediately. Mm -hmm. And he's Um, done that on multiple occasions. Talk God out of, yeah. Yeah, or talked him into more, I think, in some cases. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you have in Genesis, God regretting even making man in the first place, right? Regret requires you to change your mind about something. And what is going on here, I think, is another redaction of some of these early traditions of the Old Testament. They treat God as very anthropomorphic. Mm -hmm. They see him as kind of human. He has human issues like, you know, rage and... He's very humanized. He talks face to face with Abraham. He cares about like what his um, like reputation is going to be. Right. He he wrestles with Jacob and loses. Yeah. 
You know, all these things are a very humanized version of God that's pretty inconsistent with how Christians uh, think of him today as this sort of omnipotent, mystic kind of God that mm-hmm. is not interacting very directly with people in a human kind of way. Yeah. And that's just a different understanding of God. These early traditions did treat him as very human, maybe not omnipotent, probably not even the only God. They seem to acknowledge other gods as having existed, but a future seems like maybe a late Yahwist or late Eloist mm-hmm. redactor starts to try to paint God as more uh, omnipotent and universal, not changing his mind and sort of not having these sort of trickster-like qualities that we seem to see in some of these stories where he's kind of just screwing with you a little bit. Yeah. It's funny because my grandpa, who was a minister, actually used to talk about this with us. Like he would sell it as this idea that God was growing up throughout the Bible. And then like the Old Testament, he's kind of this like hot headed teenager who, you know, just wants to like wipe everybody out. Is like filled with all this (laughs) rage. And then he grows up a little bit after having a kid in the New Testament and is like a much more serene, peace and love, like that kind of a God. It's just, it's funny because I see, yeah, it's interesting how sometimes in my family, like we would look at it almost as like how we look at it, if it's just a story, but then at the same time still buy into it. Yeah. Um, Another thing that this story reminds me of with the donkey is the Netflix show Murder Among the Mormons. There's this whole part in there where this like dude is forging documents to to make them look like they're they're real, yeah, they're, yeah, like to make them look like they're old Mormon texts. And one of the things that he does is he creates this like infamous salamander letter. And so in the letter, it's described that Joseph is led to the like golden text or whatever by a white salamander instead of an angel, which is what the Mormons had previously learned. And this caused huge controversy among the Mormon church because it made people like question their faith because it, it made it seem more like a folktale that yeah. it was ha- led by an animal. And so I think it's like interesting that in Christianity, we have a talking donkey in it. And that's totally that doesn't make anybody be like, is this kind of like <laughs> a myth? <Yeah>. Maybe <laughs> the Israelites, while they are camped beside Moam, the Israelite men start commingling with the Moab women. They're having sex with them, having a good time. And the Moab women start inviting them to make sacrifices to their god, Baal. Which obviously does not fly with Moses and God. So God wants all of the chiefs of the 12 tribes to be impaled Dracula style for allowing this to happen. And he wants everyone who participated in the sacrifices to be killed. So meanwhile, while he's, I guess, uh, talking to Moses about this, there's an Israelite man and a Midianite woman in front of the meeting tent weeping. We don't get an explanation as to like why they're crying in front of the tent. But um, Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, sees them. He takes a spear and he puts it through their bellies. And then it's mentioned that this action of him killing these two innocent people actually stops a plague that has been going on and has already killed 24,000 people. And God fucking loves this move. He says, (laughs) by manifesting such zeal among them on my behalf that in my jealousy I did not consume the Israelites. 
And then he goes on to say, he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was Phineas, right? Yeah. Uh, Phineas, uh, for one, this is just some Game of Thrones shit going on. Yeah. And Phineas is clearly a dude who loves this shit. Okay, it's funny that you say his Game of Thrones shit because, like, it does not say that she's pregnant, but in my head, this woman is, like, pregnant with a child and yeah. he just fucking murt, like. Right. He just puts a spear through both of them together at the same yeah. time. And, yeah, it's just, it's really clear to me that Phineas just really likes violence. Yeah. And would love to murder whoever God told He's him like, to. He's like, oh, God wants these people impaled? I'll start right now on that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that really just makes him a man after Yahweh's own heart. Yeah. So, so and that's a list of why we no longer identify <laughs> with his faith. <laughs> yeah. So tell me what what do you know about Bao? Okay. So I looked into Bao a little bit because I thought maybe potentially this was like a demon situation. Mm-hmm. Which partially right on that. So okay, when I looked into Bao, it seems like he kind of has adapted himself when well, it makes it sound like he's real. He's been adapted to a lot of different kinds of cultures. And but he mostly shows up as a like weather type god and a fertility god. Right. And there is the de- the demon part. There is some things about him being adapted into Beelzebub later. Oh, really? Um, but that didn't really seem important to like this particular time mm-hmm. in the Bible. Yeah. Did you ever hear anything about Baal as like a Christian? Did they talk about it at all? give you any stories about who Bao was? I don't think so. I don't know. He doesn't seem like a, he didn't seem like an evil force. Okay. <laughs> like he just seemed like somebody that they would, you know, they were dependent on rain for their crops. So he was some guy that they would, you know, pray to, to make it rain. Yeah. And also for fertility. Christians are pretty obsessed with Bao. Hmm. And I think it's really that like hunger that people have for more interesting stories like people like paganism because it's interesting oh yeah i love paganism yeah people like you know all these like dark stories and these kind of demons and stuff like that Mm -hmm. that's why the catholic church is so big on it Mm -hmm. so christians associate him with all kinds of things i can't find any evidence to corroborate any of what christians talk about for bow he's pretty vague from what i find in actual legitimate sources and archaeological evidence like you said, he's a fertility god, and there's not a whole bunch about him. There was a some tablets that were found in ancient Syria from around 1500 BCE that talks about Baal. Uh, and in this story, it, it talks about Baal as kind of locked in an internal battle with Mot, who's the god of death. And then this determines the next seven years of whether it's going to be fruitful crops or not good crops. And then the word Baal itself really just means lord. So... He's kind of localized. He might be a little bit different in different areas because he's not really that specific. Yeah. And then Peor is actually just, it means like gap or opening, but it's really referring to this region. So he's the bowel of this region. Hmm. He's specifically the version of this deity that is is locally worshipped. Okay. But because his name is Baal of Peor, and that also means opening, Christians <laughs> associate with this more with more scandalous meanings. So they talk about him being the Lord of openings or the Lord of holes, which emphasizes his sort of sexual deviancy. There's some midrashes. Why are holes? Because that is, again, like 
you know, women are the one with whole... Why is that always associated with more sexual promiscuity? Just by having Just holes. sex itself, I guess. I don't know. But you get what I'm saying? Yeah, and it's, like, it's a little bit of a jump because... I don't know that at that time the word opening or gap just really instantly vagina. made me thinking. Yeah. Yeah. But there are midrashes that claim that people worshipped Baal by uncovering him- themselves in front of the statue or even like shitting in front of the statue. <laughs> Again, Wait, nothing <laughs> in like archaeological evidence seems to indicate this. Wait, but Christians say this about him because of the name Peor, which just means opening. Well, this was from a midrash. So it was like medieval Jewish rabbis that came up with this uh, interpretation. Okay. Also, there are a lot of like blogs and Christian articles out there that like to connect this to modern day. And they say that Baal Pure worship is happening now. Mm. (laughs) I found several of them like that. Where? Uh, Where's my invite? (laughs) One of my favorite quotes from it is, uh, it says, it is not a coincidence in America today that abortion, pornography, casino gambling, drunkenness, prostitution, communism, rock and roll, public nudity, fornication, miniskirts, witchcraft, feminism, divorce, the lies of evolution, and homosexuality oh God, are all, all those things. legal. Prostitution in a moral, is God-fearing legal. society, none of these things would be allowed. <laughs> wow. It's, uh, to me, an example of how, like, in the far Christian right, anything is about everything. Mm. So any little thing, they talk a lot about uh, abortion. It becomes about paganism and about falling away from Christianity. And it also becomes about feminism and rock and roll and everything else Mm -hmm. all at once. And they talk a lot about how, you know, sodomy and even in marriage is bad. And that's if you're doing any of these things, you are worshiping bow. Mm-hmm. which is weird to me because it's like they had agricultural like pagan gods so if i'm farming am i worshiping those gods right anyways yeah. kind of digressing and it's a useless discussion for what we're <laughs> what we're doing but it's just interesting the kind of extremism that you see another thing i found was in 2018 during the brett kavanaugh confirmation hearings in which they had Dr. Blasey Ford testifying about her sexual assault. Mm -hmm. There were these things going around where Christians were freaking out because it just so happened that the Institute for Digital Archaeology had erected the Ark of Palmyra, which is from a archaeological site. It used to stand before the Temple of Bel, which is related to Baal, but at a different time period. Okay. And it was, bas- it was basically a pagan temple of sorts uh-huh. in a particular region. And it got destroyed by ISIS. Okay. Because they hate pagans. Okay. So they destroyed it. And this Institute of Archaeology wanted to, their whole goal is to recreate all these archaeological sites to be able to rebuild them perfectly to fight against what ISIS is doing. So they erected it on the National Mall and just happened to coincide with the Kavanaugh hearings. And so Christians were freaking out about this is a sign. This is the elites, Mm. you know, erecting a monument to bow in this epic battle that's ultimately about abortion. God, okay. So yeah, that is, that is Baal of Peor. (laughs) Really just a god of fertility that the Canaanites worshipped, but has been made to be a lot of other things, a god of child sacrifice, of sexual deviancy, etc. All right. So, 
Okay, now we get another census because partially because they've been going into battle with people, but also because God himself has been killing his own people with plagues and whatnot. Yep. So they need to count everybody again. And I didn't make a note of any of the individual tribe numbers, but the bottom line is now there are 601,730 men over 20 who are able to fight or whatever. Right. So the numbers basically haven't changed, even though we're looking at an entirely new generation with none of the same people except for Caleb, Joshua, and for the time being, Moses. Yeah. So the genealogies here are similar to those from uh, Genesis 46, 6 through 27. Uh, that, was a, that one was a priestly insertion, and this one is also priestly. There are some slight discrepancies. One is that Benjamin's sons are different. In Genesis 46, we had Bella, Betcher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppin, Huppim, and Ard. And from here, in Numbers 26, we have Bella, Ashbel, Ahiram, Shephapham, and Huffam. And Betcher, who is now Bechar, just a kind of different spelling, is now a son of Ephraim. And Ard and Naaman are now grandsons of Benjamin. The genealogies don't line up, even though they're both spo- they're supposed to be from the same source. So after the census, then we get this story about the daughters of Zelophehad. So it's mentioned in the census that this one tribe didn't have any sons, so it's all daughters. So the daughters are going to Moses to ask for their inheritance because they weren't going to get it because they are not sons. And so, I mean, long story short, Moses does grant them their inheritance. So, a small win, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) this is one of those things where I feel like my first reaction is like, well, I feel like in all fairness, I have to give credit. I have to say, you know, this this is good. This is a good thing. But then I realize how low I've let the standards sink. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's kind of like when, like, when when Trump does something that's like it's like the bare minimum, and you're mm-hmm. like, well, okay, that is the right thing. Not he even did. Trump. That's like how I feel about Biden right now. It's, it's true. Like, yeah. Literally do anything. Yeah, and you know, it's one thing to consider it. I think it's relatively progressive for looking at a thing that's written by people in about a thousand BCE mm-hmm. and it's like, well, that's, that's not bad. That's for, for that time period. That's pretty good. But then if you think of this as a universal will of a universal omnipotent God, you would think you'd be way ahead of this. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, why not just take this whole thing a step further and just say daughters get to inherit regardless of whether their brothers are, are dead or not, or yeah. ever, were ever born. Exactly. Next, Joshua gets to be appointed as Moses' successor. So God is talking to Moses. He brings up the whole water situation again where Moses hit the rock instead of using the magic words to get the water out of the rock. Yeah. And it's like, and so since you did that, you don't get to go to the Holy Land either, which means that we need someone else to lead, and I'm going to make that Joshua. This is the first point where we're explicitly told to that the waters of Meribah are the reason that Moses doesn't get to go to the promised land. Right. So God tells Moses to give Joshua some of his power so that the people, I guess, you know, 
start that transition process now where the people start respecting Joshua as much as they respect Moses. Okay, and next we just get into a ton of offerings. So we they discuss daily offerings, how God wants a lamb in the morning at night and some flour, and he wants them to pour a drink out for him. Then we have Sabbath offerings, monthly offerings, offerings at Passover, offerings at the Festival of Weeks, offerings at the Festival of Trumpets, offerings on the Day of Atonement, offerings at the Festival of Booths. Yeah, this is one of something like four of these festival calendars that we get. I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of detail about the differences because they're there's just so many different versions of it and these slight discrepancies kind of everywhere in them. Uh, but some of the glaring ones is that Passover is on the 15th here instead of the 14th from Exodus 12. And Leviticus 23, which is an almost identical calendar, has uh, one bull, two rams, and seven lambs as the offering. And here we have two bulls, one ram, and seven lambs. And we omit the first fruit offerings and other well-being offerings. We also, in that very first section of this is new. It's talking about daily offerings and regular Sabbath offerings, which haven't been mentioned before. This is a new thing that we have more frequent regular offerings aside from like celebrations and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it says that these are performed at Sinai, but they're not mentioned anywhere else in the Sinai narratives. There's no discussion of them actually doing these sacrifices that are supposedly a law so next we get the section called vows made by women so essentially if a woman makes a vow then her father or her husband can nullify it if they hear it and say something about it yeah (laughs) i i was wondering is this kind of like a Swiper no swiping type situation where you got to say it fast enough. It like, is, yeah. Yeah, you just got to like jump in there right after. <laughs> I <laughs> cancel. Mean that, God. <laughs> I cancel her oath. There's this line in there where they're talking about uh, the women making these vows. And at one point it refers to, or if she makes a thoughtless utterance. <laughs> Women are always doing that. Yeah, just, well, I'm sure they are at this time, just always talking underneath, underneath their breath, like, God, if you kill this guy. Okay, if I had a knife in my hand right now. <laughs> so I, you know, of course, have to go, like, look at what Christians today are saying I had a hard time this. finding stuff. Oh, I found something. Oh, nice. So this is Reverend Ingo Dutzman, retired pastor and director of Camp Winnie on Lake Winnipesaukee. Okay, great. And so he says, the second commandment demands that God's name be kept holy, which means that vows by his name must be honored. When push comes to shove, however, God would rather keep marriage holy by having women honor their fathers and husbands. Such is God's protective grace shown in Numbers 30. God will forgive and release women from binding oaths if their fathers or husbands deem it necessary to protect them and their families. God's design for humanity is complementary unity of man and woman, not the battle of the sexes. Headship is inevitable if complete and and permanent unity is to exist. Headship is a natural joy, not an imposed burden. Most clearly seen in our Lord Jesus Christ, who selflessly sacrificed himself for his church. Headship being the idea... Oh, sorry. No, I wrote that part. Um, Headship 
is this idea that uh, women look to their husbands who look to Christ. So Christ is over yeah. husband. Husband is over the it's wife. The, the umbrella model. Yeah. Do you you want to comment on what I just read, <laughs> or are you gonna make me go into it? <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, that, that's about what I expected. I didn't somehow I couldn't find many of them. It when I typed in like commentary on this, everybody was just basically like stating like a paraphrase of what the words actually say. Uh, I don't think anybody was was brave enough to to take it on. Oh, you don't think anybody wanted to just come out and outright say that we can't trust women to make their own choices or vows or decisions in any way that men should always have some <laughs> sort of censorship over them? I mean, there's churches out there that will do it. What's the name of the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are pretty explicit about it, but modern day, I feel like it's always like the undertone, but you know, yeah. it's be- gotten to the point where it's like, they they do, but they are careful about saying it. Because you know what they do is I feel like they let the women talk about it. Yes. Like, uh, you will go yes. into women's church groups and, and you will have women express this idea Express to you. how freeing and liberating it is, it is to allow your man to, to be in charge. Yeah, the other thing, a lot of them that, that weren't, again, weren't like explicitly responding to this would just talk a lot about how you really have to be careful about making an oath and maybe you really shouldn't make an oath and there could be unintended consequences of oath. And sort of the subtext seemed to be, well, you know, men are bound to their oaths, but we set this up so that women don't have to be bound to their oath because they might make one of these oaths that, it, that they shouldn't have made, right? A thoughtless yeah. oath. The, the subtext of that that they're not willing to just confront directly and say is that the belief is that women are more likely, women can't make these decisions. They can't think about what is a smart oath to make or what might have unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. And a man should have that responsibility. Yeah. Uh, moving on, we have the war against Midian. So 12,000 men, 1,000 from each tribe, go to attack Midian. They kill all the men, including Balaam. So that's the end of the line for Balaam right there. I guess he didn't go to advise them. He just got killed by them instead. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they take all the women and the little ones as captives, all their cattle and flock. So this is the like, what did Balaam do wrong yeah. <laughs> story? And they say, according to this, that Balaam was the one who told all these women to go start having sex with Israelite men and lead them astray. Hmm. but that's not discussed anywhere else. It doesn't say that before, and it just sort of comes out of nowhere. And it's the only part of the Pentateuch, even if you look at future chapters, that really associates anything bad with Balaam. Most of the other parts are pretty friendly to him. It seems like a future redactor wanted to paint Balaam a little bit differently and added this into the, the narrative because... Potentially, a future generation of Israelites is having a lot more trouble with their neighbors and wants to wants to tell a different story about them and reflect the current realities onto a archaic past. Also, Balaam is not exclusively a biblical character. Hmm. Is something that I found in 1967, archaeologists uncovered something called the Balaam inscription. It's in Deir Allah, uh, which is and it's dated to approximately the eighth century. And that town that they uncovered is thought to maybe be the biblical Sukkot, 
which is the first place they go after leaving Egypt. Okay. Or it could be Pethor, which is the place that Balaam is believed to have lived. Okay. So in this story, it talks about Balaam seeing visions, and he sees visions of this upcoming catastrophe where several gods, which are referred to as the Shaddai gods, are plotting against El, which is the lead god of the Canaanites. And they're trying to sew up the heavens so that the world's in eternal darkness. And then El is fighting against them. And Balaam kind of thwarts this whole thing. Mm. And it's interesting because they talk about the Shaddai gods and they talk about El, the lead god of the Canaanites. Both of these are, are words that are associated in the Hebrew Bible with Yahweh. They huh. refer to him as El Shaddai sometimes in the Hebrew Bible which be, is translated to God Almighty, but Hebrew scholars think it, it actually meant something different. I, I guess the, the interesting part about all this is kind of shows the interconnection of the legends between different cultures and the reality that the Bible isn't in sort of a vacuum, and they're borrowing stories from other yeah. local groups from the Canaanites and probably passing some off as well. Right. And like what we talked about with the serpent on the staff. Yeah. And, you know, you have this character from both of them that in the Hebrew Bible is worshiping Yahweh, but clearly in this other tradition, uh, worship the Canaanite gods mm -hmm. and refers to the Canaanite gods. Also, I talked a little bit about him coming from Pethor. Between Numbers and 22 and 23, we actually changed the, the origin of Balaam from Pethor to Aaron. Yeah. This next part is really fucking depressing to me i like if i was reading the actual bible i probably would have thrown it but i'm like reading it on my phone so yeah. i just kind of had to like set it down for a little bit but this next bad. part is so the men come home uh you know with all of these captors and moses is mad because they let the women live he's angry because of the whole worshiping bow thing and so he thinks that they should have killed all of them yeah so what they do is they kill all of the boys and they're, you know, told that they can divvy up the virgin women for themselves. Right. And they kill all the non-virgin women. Yeah. They're also executed. Yeah. It just fucking sucks because it's just like, it's just like a really dehumanizing story. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, take a minute. <laughs> it is. It's. Well, for one, they refer to the women inclusive in the word booty. Yeah, they they're like, literally part like of the lumped booty. in, yeah, and, with the cattle and like the flocks. Right. And their fate is either murdered if they are non-virgins and now apparently useless or not innocent anymore. And they are divided. In, there's like, they literally go through in great detail the numbers of who gets who amongst the men to keep yeah and i'm sure when christians discuss this that you know they're gonna say well you know none of this means that it wasn't consensual or anything like that and it's like Go fuck there's just no way you can claim in a captive situation that there is consent going on plus these men that you are now married to or property of just killed your sisters your brothers, your mothers, your fathers, literally everyone you know. And yeah, it's like, 
insane to think that, I guess it's just crazy that like someone could read this at any point in time and think this is justice and that it's okay to dehumanize people like that. Yeah, and like I made a note that it says that like none of the Israelite men died when they did this. So yeah. to me, that isn't like to me that isn't saying like oh their like military prowess was such that you know none of them died. To me, this mm-hmm. is that they attacked an innocent like like a not well equipped for war yeah an unprepared community. yeah so completely caught them off guard. Just come in and start you know murdering all these people in like their homes and. Yeah. Yeah, it just really fucking bums me out. I think the other part of this that speaks to me is sort of like there's a clear victim blame narrative going on in that they put all of this, they put responsibility on these women, like to the point of putting them to death over the Balpior incident, right? You had an incident where, I mean, you, you literally instituted a plague against the Israelites because the Israelites were straying from your commandment on them and the women who don't live by this commandment and just were involved in this, having sex with the Israelite men, many of them probably not even consenting to it. Yeah. Are blamed for this to the point of death. Like what is the responsibility of the Israelite men? Why are we not coming circling back and saying, and because you did, you know, that now, I don't know. Like there feels like there should be something more. Yeah. Well, even if it, I know, like, um, even if it was consensual, it just kind of seems like you you start seeing this woman from another culture, and she's like, "Hey, like, let me show you like how we do things here. Like, this is our God, and this is you know what we do to honor Him and stuff." It just doesn't feel like they were like maliciously trying to right. drag them away from their God, and yeah, it's just like, "Hey, you want to have." sex with me like let me show you a little bit of my life yeah and i think that sort of malicious dark and intentional personification on onto these women mm-hmm. is similar to what we see in christian pop culture like the whole incident made me think a lot about like jim baker and jessica hahn from like the 80s mm. and everything that went on after that and the way that we have to tell the story Okay, well, I guess we'll, yeah, the, so the story is basically Jim Baker, who's a prominent televangelist, widely known, was basically, his kind of place in the world was, was taken down because uh, people found out about a bunch of financial scandals, which involved a payoff to Jessica Hahn, a woman that he had been, according to him, in a consensual sexual relationship with, but according to her, she was sexually assaulted and then paid off by Jim Baker and his foundation to not talk about it. And this came to light because they found the payoff. They also found all kinds of other financial scandals he was involved in as part of this. And she was just absolutely lit on fire Mm -hmm. uh, by the media and by Christian culture. And she was just seen very negatively as she was, I think she modeled for Playboy at some point. And this became sort of as proof that like, Oh, she knew everything she was doing, and this yeah, was like, all see, intentional. Yeah, she's a whore. She'll, yeah. Yeah, and uh, a quote I have is like, so in 1987, which was the year that this all happened, the Wall Street Journal called it the year of the bimbo. Like, th- like that's where the wor- world was at on this narrative. Yeah. Like, we somehow couldn't believe that this man who had clear financial scandals, you know, was capable of sexually assaulting this woman, right? Or even, like, if he hadn't, why, you know, 
why wouldn't your anger just be directed at him for failing to meet the Christian standard? Right. Next, we have the conquest and division of Transjordan. So the Reubenites and Gadites have a lot of cattle there, big cattle men. Cattle that they couldn't eat for the past four years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they find this like nice spot of land that they think would be a great spot to raise some cattle. So they go to Moses, the tribe leaders, and Eleazar, and tell them that they, you know, they want to take this land and use it for their cattle. They, they're basically saying that they don't want to go into the land that God has promised because they like the land that they're seeing right here, and they would just like to stay here and you yeah. know, take up shop here. And Moses gets pretty sassy with them and says, so you just want your brothers to go to war while like, you <laughs> sit pretty here? And so they say, like, okay, well, what if we just erect a town here and we get to leave, like, our children and our families here? And, you know, we'll go with everybody, all the other guys into war with them. And then we can come back to this land afterwards. And, yeah, Moses agrees to that. So. Yeah. I have a quote, too. <laughs> so Moses is saying, is telling them, you know, your trash fathers also tried to pull something similar to this. And that's why God isn't, you know, wouldn't let them go into the Holy Land. And then he says, end quote, and now you, a brood of sinners, have risen in place of your fathers to increase the Lord's fierce anger against Israel. Yeah. Like. <laughs> Pretty shady. It's so, it's so funny to me because when God is talking to, to Balaam, it's just like, those are my people. I, I love them. I would do anything for them. And then like, meanwhile, you go into the actual camp. And it's just like, God hates these people. Yeah. He is so angry with them all the time right. that they're never listening to him or doing what he wants them to do. Yeah. Uh, so some interesting things from this story is that this whole story from the beginning is about uh, Reuben and Gad. You get to the end, though, and there's this weird change where in Numbers 32, 33, Moses gave to them, to the Gadites and to the Reubenites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, son of Joseph, so this half tribe of Manasseh comes out of nowhere. Uh, these are they're called the the Maturites, and then it talks about them going and dispossessing the Amorites in Gilead. But back in Numbers twenty one, Israel as a whole has already defeated the Amorites, so it's kind of unnecessary. And then along with this is we kind of repeat it at this point because Moses initially says that Eliezer and Joshua are going to give them this land after the conquest of Canaan, and he makes a deal with Eliezer and Joshua, but then suddenly Moses just gives it to them mm. right here. He just says, like, he gives them the land without any real conditions attached to it. That original account with Eliezer and Joshua is a priestly account that gets redacted in here. With what intent, I'm not really sure, but it is a different narrative. And then the last part of this is it calls Caleb, Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, which contradicts everything else previously that refers to Caleb as a descendant of Judah. And so the Kenizzites are not even descendants of Jacob at all. They're actually not Israelites. They are Edomites, descendants oh. of Esau. Oh. So that is a weird, different version of the narrative that maybe was meant to establish some kind of some kind of right to the land of the Edomites that they eventually try to take because one of among them is uh, an Edomite. Mm. All right. Next we then we get this like 
description of the stages of Israel's journey from Egypt. So it's just um, a whole passage about how they go from this place to this place to this place. Yep. Uh, and again, 15th day is when they set out according to this compared to the 14th day in Exodus. And there are definitely discrepancies between if you go back and you read the whole story and try to track the journey from place to place compared to what it summarizes here. But there is like way too much of it for it would be very confusing to hear over this podcast. But I will share a link that a biblical scholar, Stephen DeMatte, has a, a really good article on it that tracks a lot of these discrepancies. Cool. Then we get some directions for the conquest of Canaan. God basically tells them that he wants them to kill everybody. And if they don't, then he will do to them what he planned to do to the Canaanites. Yeah. He has this aside in there that's like, basically like, don't get any ideas about mercy. You know, <laughs> don't you get any funny ideas that you're going to show any mercy on these people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it just reminds me of that, like, things that like a, a dad would say, like, you know, everything you do to her, I'm going to do to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so then they discuss, you know, so after you conquer them, these are what the boundaries of the land are going to be. These are, these are who are going to be the tribal leaders. These are where the cities for the Levites are going to be. And then they discuss these cities of refuge that they want put into place. So these cities of refuge are towns for accused people to go to until they stand trial. Specifically, anybody accused of murder. Because of that, then they start explaining like what counts as murder and what counts as blood revenge. So if you intentionally try to kill someone and succeed, you will be put to death. If it's unintentional, then a judge has to decide. And so if you are let go then you have to go live in the refuge city for as long as the high priest that is around right now is alive. But if they ever leave that city and they are found by the avenger of blood, so I guess anybody who is angry about the person, about the death of the person that you killed, then they can kill you without consequences. Yeah, it's like a game of tag. They're yeah, like a safe zone. really dangerous game of death. <laughs> you leave and you get caught, you're going to die. Yeah, and then also no one can be sentenced if there is only one witness to the murder. Right. Going back to the boundaries, there are multiple places in the Pentateuch where they define the boundaries of the promised land, and a lot of them do differ slightly. So one of them we'll see is that uh, in Exodus 23, they define the southern border as the Dead Sea to the Sea of the Philistines which goes pretty far south and includes parts of Edom. Whereas in this version, the southern border is like this curving kind of path that goes from Wilner's of Zin and cuts off at the border of Edom. There's also the western border, which the Pentateuch is pretty consistent about being the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. But historically and archaeologically, it's not true. Mm. The Phoenicians and Philistines were never conquered by the Israelites and always held land on the uh, coast of the Mediterranean mm -hmm. that the kingdom of Israel sort of had these little cutouts that it skirted around that coastline. We also have a, a part here where Moses commands the Israelites and he says, this is the land that you will inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half tribe. Uh, which is coming back to that whole thing where Reuben and Gad 
are not going to actually be in the land of Canaan. And then the half tribe of Manasseh is also not going to be in the land of Canaan. But it's it contradicts Numbers 26, which says specifically that they're apportioning the land to all 12 tribes. Hmm. All right. So last but not least in Numbers, we have the marriage of female heirs. So remember when we gave them a little bit of credit? <laughs> Take vaccines. <laughs> yeah. So basically, if they want to keep that money, they have to marry their cousin. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. So it says if they marry anybody outside of their clan, then they lose that inheritance. They want to keep everybody's inheritance within the family. So all the clans have to follow this rule where they marry within their own clan. Right. And it's, yeah, it's basically like all the men among that tribe were like, hey, now these women are getting the money and they're going to take it. You know, somewhere it's, else. It's one thing if, if they're going to come and marry one of us and we get it back, mm-hmm. but now they're going to take it away and do whatever with it. And that's that's not good. That's no not okay. Yeah. And I think you can sort of let this go if you if you don't really like think about it. But if you really think about it, <laughs> these men, right? If they inherit from their fathers, they can go and they can marry a woman from any other tribe, and that's seen as they're still inheriting. And then they have children, and those those children are still inheriting, and we're considering it consistent that it's staying within the tribe. But if these women go and they marry somebody from outside the tribe, right? They're still sons of, or they're still daughters of whatever that you know father tribe is. Mm-hmm. But it's not considered; they're not considered legitimate members of the family. Right, it's basically what it is. So because they when go they, and they marry, marry somebody, their husband, their husband isn't now a part of that tribe. Yeah, it's because it's always the women get absorbed into the the man's family. Yeah, and they don't want the money leaving. The <laughs> right, yeah, but I guess it's just like it seems like it's. I guess you don't really consider the daughters to be true inheritors, even though you said that they inherited. Exactly, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Is like. We gave them credit for like, oh, okay, cool. Like, you know, even though they're getting it under weird circumstances, now these women get to be in control like of this inheritance, which is like power, you know, that's money. And then the very end, they backtrack it and they say, but actually you can't marry outside of your own family because we don't want that money leaving this bloodline. Yeah. And you're not a part of our bloodline is basically the... Yeah, your property. So if you marry a man, you'll become that man's property yeah. along with all of your yeah. Well, I hate this book. We are four books down, <laughs> and we've come back yet again to misogyny. <laughs> but we're powering through and going into Deuteronomy next time. Yeah, uh, this will be the last book in the Pentateuch. And we'll be introduced to the final source that we haven't seen yet. And our Twitter can be found at, at Atheist Study if you want to find out more about when our episodes are being released and to follow us there. Oh, and rate us on, um, on iTunes. Yes, we'd love to hear your feedback. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.